May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. You know, it's awfully hard to get out of bed on a morning like this one, isn't it? Just feel a little fuzzy sometimes. Maybe an extra cup of coffee would help. So let's talk about idolatry. (laughs) If you're not awake yet, you'll get there. So in Exodus, the Israelites get to Mount Sinai. And they stop there so Moses can go up onto the mountain to hear from the Lord. The people, of course, are left behind and must have begun to wonder how long Moses was going to be gone. That is actually the first thing we hear from Exodus 32 this morning. The people come to Aaron and they say, look, how long is this man Moses going to be away? And is he ever going to come back? So we can understand if they have some questions. Now, unfortunately, this sounds like excuse making as if we need to apologize for the Israelites because they lose faith so quickly. And in a way, it seems right because they lose the plot completely. Moses goes up on the mountain to get the law, and it seems like anarchy descends on the Israelite camp. Now, I know that you and I would do better. We don't have these problems. When leaders go away, we keep faith and we work quietly and wait patiently. But just in case... It seems like something that we should spend some time thinking about. The plain facts are, Moses goes up on the mountain to hear from the one true God who actually brought Israel out of a life of slavery and servitude and death by the power of his own hand. And while Moses is away, the Israelites come to his brother, Aaron. They come to the priest, which, of course, is not often how it goes. Uh, They come to the priest first. And demand that new gods be made for them. Idols shaped by human hands to go before the people and lead them through the wilderness. As if God's leadership to this point has somehow been a disappointment to them. They hardly know Moses and don't know when he's coming back. So some sort of contingency plan has to be made. And Aaron, who's meant to be a priest consecrated to serve before the Lord, folds under their peer pressure like a cheap card table. So he is, on one hand, either a man of the people who really wants to serve them, or a tremendous coward, depending on your perspective. Aaron gives in to their demands and tells them to bring their gold to him for melting down. And this is a sign of the commitment that the rabble of Israel have made to breaking their faith with the Lord, they're so ready to commit this great blasphemous act that they give up the gold they brought with them from Egypt. This is the plunder that the Lord made possible. And they hand it over to Aaron in order that a new God be made from scratch for them to worship. This will be their God now the one that they can see and touch and make sacrifices to while they journey in the wilderness. So Aaron builds an altar and proclaims a feast, stealing honor from the one true Lord, 
while proclaiming that the golden calf is the God who redeemed Israel from Egypt, as if he and all of the people have forgotten their recent history entirely. They know who made them free. They were all there. But they give up that trust and choose to fall down before the idol. And up on the mountain with Moses, God sees what is happening. God, you may remember, sees everything. And God sees how Aaron has decided to grant their request and make this golden calf for them to worship, replacing the relationship they have with the one true living God with a mute thing made by human hands. Idolatry, of course, is in some ways understandable. You and I have been guilty of idolatry before. If we think about it, especially less as being focused on something like the golden calf itself or anything made by human hands, and instead begin to see that idolatry is just any worship of anything of the God that is not the Trinity. If we worship anything that is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we commit idolatry. In that sense, while idolatry sort of has ancient connotations, and the golden calf is a very ancient sort of thing to worship, it remains a widespread contemporary problem. We can have idolatrous relationships with our spouses. Some of us have idolatrous relationships with video games. You can worship anything. I was picking on one person in particular. Uh, you can have an idolatrous relationship with any number of things. And the truth is that idolatry leads to very impressive displays of devotion. The only problem being, of course, that because idolaters are so zealous, they're happy to deal pretty violently with those who call into question their version of God. This is the challenge that Moses and Aaron will have to solve together later in Exodus. And Christians, of course, are people who believe that only God is worth our ultimate allegiance. It's the sort of commitment that leads us to challenge those who make idols out of gold or silver or their best friend or some other kind of human endeavor. Idolatry challenges true faith. But we know the God who has redeemed us because he has revealed himself to us in Jesus. And we know, therefore, that we can accept no substitutes. But the Israelites have decided to worship a false god of their own creation. And God's response is swift and understandably quite strong. God tells Moses to get down off the mountain, to get to a safe distance so that the anger of the Lord can burn hot and become an all-consuming fire, so that the wrath of God will boil over and destroy Israel once and for all, that all the nation will be wiped out, and God will start this mission of redemption over again with Moses as the founder of a new nation all his own. This is God's immediate response. After all that's been done on their behalf, this faithfulness is God's choice, that he will remain faithful to Moses, despite the faithlessness of Moses' people. You notice how God speaks to Moses about what the Israelites have done? He says, this, your people. This happens, as I understand, in marriages occasionally. Sometimes children become your son, your daughter. 
This people failed in their one duty, and God now wants to put them at arm's length at the very least. The Lord calls them stiff-necked, which I think is so evocative. But they seem all too willing to bow their heads to the calf. Their refusal to submit only applies to the relationship they have with the one true Lord. And yet, Moses intercedes on the behalf of the Israelites before God. Despite the fact that the Israelites say they don't know him, despite the fact that he knows them very well, for the sake of God's own honor, Moses stands up and makes his case before the Lord. Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. So God is reminded of his promise and of his relationship with this people, and he relents from his anger. But their sin remains and is not forgotten. Moses steps into that gap between God and God's people to advocate for them. And to remind God of the promises made to their ancestors. But there must be some atonement made for the relationship between God and the people to be restored. In the memorable phrasing of Exodus, this people have broken loose. They have broken loose and they have broken faith. And their collective sin is so great that God almost wipes Israel out there and then. And only Moses' bold faith saves them from total destruction. And there will be consequences, because idolatry and sin always come with consequences. Moses returns to the camp and has to find men to help him root out the rabble and to recover the faithful from among the faceless. That sin, though, has to be dealt with. We cannot just carry on. Moses doesn't come down from the mountain and say, hey, guys, I know some mistakes were made, but we're not going to talk about the past. Let's just move on. These egregious errors that we hope will eventually get better have to be addressed. And we must submit ourselves to the will of God in order to do so. That's what we see King David doing in Psalm 51. Psalm 51 famously is the psalm that David has written in response to Nathan the prophet accusing him of murdering Bathsheba's husband to have her for himself. David has done a terrible thing. And he has to get back into right relationship with God. And so it is in the Exodus. But God, crucially, is willing to let things be repaired. God does not hold grudges eternally. God desires to bring the Israelites, just as he returns and restores David, back into relationship with himself. And that means that all of us, No matter how distant we might feel from God's will, no matter how lost we may seem to be, can find a place at home in the kingdom of God if we are willing to put ourselves at God's mercy. We can find ourselves on the right side of salvation history no matter what we have said or done or been. It's not just possible, but likely That if we feel like our lives are beset by sin, if we feel hopeless and surrounded and unworthy, it is likely that God intends to redeem even us. Yes, 
No matter what we have done, God does still intend to bring us home, to be saved from whatever it is that troubles us and made fitting to serve in God's kingdom. We can be changed. We can be redeemed, even if that capacity for change and redemption does not exist within ourselves, but resides only with God. The parables that we read this morning from the Gospel of Luke bring this truth home with a kind of resounding thud. God does not just abandon us to our sinful nature when we decide to wander away. No matter what the sin might be, God comes searching for us. It can be a little bit annoying. But God intends not to just let us say no and walk away. The landowner who's lost one of his hundred sheep may be well off, but he's not so well off that he can let one of them just go. And the woman with the ten coins who loses one has nine others, but she's not just chalking up to a loss and carrying on with her life. Both of them go looking for what they are missing. And like God, they don't give up the search for what they're seeking, even if it seems to be too much work or too small a thing to bother with. Even in the same way, God goes looking for us when we're lost. Even though whatever we have done might be egregious, God intends to bring us home. But it's not the searching that's the most interesting thing. I don't think about these parables, no matter how intense or frantic the search might be. It is the celebration that follows the recovery of the lost items, because there is rejoicing. Jesus says there is a party throne. There is a kind of unreserved, unrestrained, unfortunately maybe a little un-Anglican kind of happiness that happens when what was lost is found. And Jesus says that rejoicing is what the angels in heaven do when one sinner repents and returns to the Lord. Imagine the party there would have been if the Israelites had just been able to remain faithful to God. Imagine the celebration when Paul's eyes saw Jesus on the Damascus road or the ecstasy when you and I repent of our sins and restore relationship with God and with one another. In heaven, there is joy when things are set back in their proper place because that is what God desires for the whole created world. That everything and everyone be put back just right. The goal of these parables is to remind us that God desires to recover all lost things and all lost people. The celebration at the discovery of the lost sheep and the lost coin teaches that the heart of God is not to punish sinners or those who have wandered astray, but to exhaust every possibility to the point of absurdity in order to recover and redeem them and then throw a tremendous excessive party when they are found. Around the house when I was a child, we used to call my mother the finder of all lost things because she just had a knack for finding spare socks and misplaced books and keys when they had fallen into the couch and my dad's glasses when he had cleverly hidden them on his own forehead. (laughs) But God is the true finder of all lost things, the one who is searching high and low for the sheep that belong to his flock, for the coin that has fallen out of the pocket, for the daughter that was lost and needs to be found. And God is stubborn. God just does not give up that search. There is sinful behavior in this morning's readings. 
Real sin that needs real judgment that leads to real consequences. But God's forgiveness is available even in these stories. Because the shepherd doesn't decide just to go home and pick up another sheep tomorrow. The woman doesn't just give up and try to make her life work with one less coin. Because God does not just abandon us in our selfishness and in our sinfulness and in our self-deception and move on with new people in a new place. God is persistent and faithful, even when you and I are inconsistent and faithless. So there is hope that when we are lost, we will be found. That when we feel far from God, we might be called to come a little bit closer. That when the night is cold and dark, there is a home waiting for us where a fire is kindled and a place is set and we will find there freedom and rest for our souls. Jesus is calling us, poor and needy sinners that we are, to give up our idolatry and to come home where we belong to set aside our selfishness and our pride and trust that he really does love us and that his love will truly find us. When we turn away from him or we turn inward on ourselves, when we wage a war against God of our own making, we try to push away. But despite our willfulness, like a patient parent, God is willing to give up almost everything to bring us back even at the expense of his own life. That is the hope that we hold on to, the hope that is extended to us always and everywhere. That no matter what we have done, no matter what we have left undone, no matter the idols that we have built with our own hands or in our minds, no matter the things we set at the center of our lives that are not of God, that the Lord is still searching for all lost things and all lost people. And that his desire, the thing that holds together the very heart of the whole universe, is that his love for us can overcome even our sin. Thanks be to God. Amen.